When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Good evening, everyone. This is Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Once again, hope you're staying healthy. Hope you're staying safe. We are in uncharted territory. We have no idea what's going on. We have no idea what is going to happen. There's talk about reopening the country on May 1st. There's been pushback from a lot of states on that. So who knows? Who knows how long we're going to be under quarantine, under lockdown, under a stay-at-home order. It's just a, a complete mess out there. And hopefully we're providing a little bit of an escape for you. I know we've been doing a lot of content, a lot of episodes. So hopefully you've been enjoying them. Always appreciate the feedback. Always appreciate the messages on Twitter or Facebook. So thank you very much. Today's guest, very happy that she's doing this. It's Jade Alicia. Her website is shutupandrock.com. Shutupandrockon.com, I should say. Yes. And... (laughs) Her uh, her Twitter handle is Jade underscore Alicia. What's going on, Jade? How are you? How are you? I'm okay. Just hanging out. It's free. it's snowing outside in April, so uh, <laughs> yeah. hanging out indoors today. I, I woke up this morning and I looked, you know, outside the window in the kitchen. And I saw snow on the ground, and I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" I mean, like we're under lockdown. We can't do anything. And now there's snow on the ground at the end of April or mid-April, so it's just. I like, mean, I guess I guess if it's gonna snow, it's cool that we're inside. We don't really have to deal with it, but it's still just obnoxious the principle that it's mid-April and there's snow on the ground. Yeah, it's just what else could happen? I mean, the spring hasn't been that bad compared to last spring. Last spring was absolutely miserable, so none of us went outside last spring. So here we are with the spring a little bit better. We are able to maybe go out, but you can't because you got this virus going on and everybody's, you know, every, every time someone goes out, like myself, I wear a mask and gloves. I feel like I'm like, I'm preparing for surgery. I know it's a whole ordeal. Hopefully we won't have to deal with it much longer, but like, you, like you just said, who knows at this point? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we'll get into that uh, as we move forward with our discussion, our conversation, but first, all right. We always start the show the first time 
we have a new guest the same way, and that is the essence of the podcast, The Hook Rocks. Just okay. like every rock fan has a moment that – every I'm sorry, every rock song has a hook that sucks you in. Every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a band, an album, a performance, or a song – that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? Oh man, there could be so many things. <laughs> um, I mean, like a lot of us, I grew up listening to Kiss, and that was like the band for me. You know, like seeing those faces and hearing that music. I mean, I was only like, who knows, probably like six or seven from when I can really remember listening to the band, but for as long as I know and the stories I've heard you know I was in diapers running around in circles in my house to like metal music so for me I'd have to say it was probably hearing I can remember Kiss and hearing their Love Gun album in my dad's car on the way to school every day and I remember I heard Tomorrow and Tonight and I thought it was the catchiest thing I've ever heard so I fell in love with Kiss from there and then I mean it just skyrocketed after that I love that song. Tomorrow and tonight, especially the live version on a live two. I know. Oh, it's great. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it really is. And it's it's a shame that song doesn't get recognized more because it is such a catchy hook and it's got a great melody and it's got, you know, it's just a great song in general. I agree. I totally agree. Kiss was an, a gateway for me too. I remember my first cassette that I bought with my own money. I think I was nine years old. It was Kiss Lick It Up. And that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the kiss, the non-makeup period is just important to me as the makeup period. Obviously, I remember Kiss being around with the magazine covers when you'd see him at the grocery store or the Halloween masks and all the paraphernalia that they sold. So I remember Kiss being this, like, what is this? Because I, I, you know, was, was a kid during the Star Wars era. So everything was kind of like larger than life with Star Wars and Kiss right. and all this stuff. So I remember them being something that I was always interested in. And then when I got a little bit older and I started hearing their music and obviously the the makeup and all that stuff, I really was connected with it. And Kiss really was a big, huge influence on my childhood. Yeah, me too. And it was it's weird because it was so much different for me growing up. Obviously, I was born in uh, 1998. So I didn't get to grow up and see, you know, their faces in the in the store windows and, you know, just see the records and not really like be able to like, you know, go on YouTube and like hear all these things, you know? So I was like lucky that I had my dad growing up who like kind of, I could totally back catalog just about any band, but Kiss especially. It was weird for me growing up, but I, I mean, I wouldn't change it for anything, but it's such, you guys got such a cool experience in like the seventies and the eighties getting to experience everything as it was happening. I'm so jealous. My son says the same thing. He's 15, and he always says, I wish I would have grown up in you know when you were a kid because none of my friends like rock and roll or only a few friends like rock and roll. And it's a different period, you know? I mean, kids are yeah. connected to different things and different styles of music, and you know, I've touched on that a lot on previous episodes and, and why that happens, but it is a lot different. Um, there's a great book that was just released by Joey Casada. Who, oh my god, I love him! <laughs> yeah, yeah, he he did. Uh, he wrote a book called "Start with a Dream," and yeah. the first part of the book is about growing up in the '80s when you'd go to the record store and you'd absorb that music. And I even told my son, if you want to understand what it was like, 
to, you know, with the band scenes in every market, you know, every market had a local rock scene that had original music. There was really no cover bands or cover bands yeah, really were that not time. that much. Yeah. So if you want to understand what it was like, that book is just tells it like it was. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about it. I've read uh, some of it, but I have a very short attention span, so that'll get me about a chapter every now and then. But um, yeah, Joey's book, the parts that I read were really awesome. And I do agree with you about how the whole experience was and the way he portrays it's really great in that book. Like I said, I'm super jealous. <laughs> what did, where did it go from there? After Kiss, what, uh, what was the next group? Where, where did uh, the journey in rock lead you to? So... I'm not going to lie. I was like one of those annoying, annoying Kiss fans for like a lot of my life. I was so dedicated to that band. Oh my God, you could ask me anything and I would just have an answer and I could relate it to Gene Simmons somehow. It was insane. So I really was like loyal to Kiss for a long time. And then when I was in high school, I was probably about like 14 or 15 maybe. Um, That's when I found Y&T. And from there, I mean, when I was younger, yeah, it was Kiss, but it was kind of only Kiss. Once I found Y&T, I got on the internet, and then it just exploded. That's what I found about every band after that when I was about 15. Y&T is a band that should have a lot more fans than it does. It's such an underrated band, and it's an you know, underappreciated band. I mean, for the, band, for the fans that do like Y&T, like myself, one of my first albums I ever bought was Down for the Count, Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, very, very loyal. You know, we love our Y and T, but it's like you, you talk to someone who's not familiar with them, and it's like deer in the headlights. They're like, "What? What's this Y and T? Like, what are you talking about?" Yeah, no, totally. I could talk anybody's ear off about Y and T, whether they want to hear it or not. I mean, that band, uh, their entire catalog is so good. They really in. 78, 79, when they were yesterday and today, those albums were good. And then when they became Y&T, it was just a whole different, they were like ready to take over the world. And I'm so mad that you guys who were around in the 80s did not give them a huge career. I'm so angry at all of you. (laughs) Well, a lot of it has to do with their record company. Their record company really didn't do much for them. I mean, in terms of promoting them. I know, it's a real shame. The same thing happened to Kick-Ass. Kick-Ass is another one of my favorite bands. Um, should have been bigger than what they were and again it all fell on the record label just totally dropped the ball bad record labels bad promoters all that kind of things a lot of people don't realize really what goes into the band more so than the band itself right i mean if you don't have the support of the label or the label has nothing to you know they, they know nothing what to do with your band and your, your music it's one of the reasons why i think Dokken, although very popular and one of my favorite bands never reached that Bon Jovi level because they they you could the the, the Judas Priest fans loved them and the Bon Jovi mm-hmm. fans loved them and no one really knew how to market them you know because you know they could open up for a priest and be you know and, and priest fans would love them and then they would go on tour and do like a Monsters of Rock tour with Van Halen and the fans would love them so there was always this you know thing with docking where no one really knew what to do with them in terms of their record label and I think that really hurt them I agree I was talking uh, on Twitter not too long ago about like bands that like should have made it and then 
kind of did it. And a lot of people said Dokken and it was hard for me to gauge because again, like I wasn't there. So like I couldn't go to the concerts. I didn't know how the bands were being received. I didn't know how many times they would get played on MTV. So it was so hard for me to gauge really. For me, a band I think is successful. People were like, no, they were opening for their whole career. So it's just so weird to me, but a lot of people really said Dokken. And again, to me, that's like a huge band. They were so popular. They're one of my favorite bands, but in the bigger picture of, you know, I guess the music industry, you're exactly right about how they were like marketed and presented. I always have said that if Alone Again was released after Home Sweet Home, because Home, Home Sweet Home <laughs> was really like the the big power ballad. And after that, yeah. every band had to have a power ballad. And I always say if Alone Again would have came out like two months after Home Sweet Home, Dokken would have been a stadium act. I mean, yeah. Because really, what was the first like big power ballad? Was it Home Sweet Home? What year even was that? Like eighty five, Fear of Your Pain. Yeah, eighty five, eighty six ish. So I mean, that okay. was when you know there was this big changeover from the rawness of the early eighties to the glam side. After that, and Motley Crue was a big proponent of that. When you look at the back cover of Theater of Pain, when you look at the power oh, ballad, course, yeah. I mean, everything changed after that. So that really was the big giant power ballad that everybody loved i mean i remember there was a thing on mtv called request live or or video request and for like three months home sweet home was like number one they finally <laughs> had to retire it because so crazy. it was nuts every every day home sweet home was number one it was crazy but after that every band had to have a power ballad or two on their albums and you know alone again was on tooth and nail which was before theater of pain and I just yeah. think that uh, if it was released after, if that song would have came after, Dokken would have been that big band that everybody thinks they should have been. Well, as they say, as Dave Mustaine says, hindsight is always twenty twenty. So, yeah, <laughs> Dokken. I think Dokken did pretty well for themselves. So. I think so too. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think so too. My my uh, my Ace Freely Y and T story. I have to tell you about. So I was twelve years oh, I old. It. I was twelve years old, nineteen eighty seven. And, of course, Big Kiss fan, Ace Freely's debut uh, solo album, Freely's Comet, comes out. Oh, my God. I yeah. go, I go to the rec- <laughs> I, My grandpa takes me to the record store to get his autograph because he was doing a sign-in. Oh, then, yeah. The next night, we, uh, I was sleeping over at a friend's house. I was 12 years old, and we went to the mall to buy tickets at this place called Aragon Ballroom in Chicago. And I'm 12 years old, so my friend's older brother tells us what subway to take. You know, we have the L in Chicago, so it's similar to the to the subway. So what L okay. train to get on and when to get up because we had to do a changeover. He drops us off at the L station, and then he tells us how to get back. He'll pick us up at this particular time. So me and two of my friends were 12 years old. We're on the L going to the Aragon Ballroom, much different than it is today. I mean, 87 in Chicago in that area is mu- was much different. So we get off, we get make these changes, everything. We get into the Aragon Ballroom. We're 12 years old. The place was called the Aragon Brawl Room. That was the nickname for it. Mm-hmm. So we get in, and Faster Pussycat is the opener. And then oh my God. Y&T is the second act. And, you know, Y&T just blew me away. I mean, I had Down for the Count already. It was just, mm-hmm. like, this was awesome. They were great live. There was marijuana being passed over our shoulder and, you know, all over the place. Uh, These three three Catholic schoolboys, 12 years old, are sitting in this cloud of marijuana. 
And there's, of course, Aragon Ball, Brawl Room. There's fights going on. There's, I mean, and it's just the, the crowd is like shifting, and he had no control over it. And then Ace Freely comes down. He does the countdown to rip it out and just blows the doors off of the place. And, you know, we had we all had contact highs walking, you know, coming oh, out God, of the I show. I can only imagine, yeah. Oh, it was great. That was my that was my first experience seeing Ace live and Y&T live. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that was, God, that was 20, 20, no, 33 years ago. Jesus. God, I'm an old oh, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember the first time I saw Y&T Live, it was at this little, like, bar and grill in upstate New York, and I came about it by chance, so literally, like I said, I was, like, 15 when I heard Y&T for the first time, because I was on my way home from cheerleading practice, (laughs) and um, I was listening to SiriusXM, and Don't Stop Running came on, and my dad was like, holy shit, do you know this band? And I was like, I don't think so. If you haven't played it, I probably don't know it. Um, he was like, oh, my God, this is a great band, and he was really hyping them up. So I went home, and me and him totally back-cataloged them. And once we decided that we loved them, uh, we went on their website, and we found out that they were playing two weeks later, like 45 minutes from our house. So we went and saw them, and there were maybe 30 people there. And I was like, oh, no, this is going to be a really bad show, but um, the exact opposite. It was so small, but it was so intimate, it, and everybody who was there was just, so so into it I was right up on the stage I actually had to sneak in because I wasn't old enough to be there my dad snuck me in over the barricade like it was a whole thing but honestly like Dave Menachetti his voice his guitar skills like everything about that band is just I don't I do so good I can't even explain it (laughs) I agree he's very underappreciated I've always compared him to like a Gary Moore very good guitar player. Yeah, totally. And, yeah, that's he, a good one. And he's got a great voice too. You know, it's, it's and it's withheld so well. His voice was held up so amazingly over the last, you know, however many years. And the fact that he can perform at 110 every night, the whole band does now. Even though uh, he's the only original guy left, it's still like a kick-ass rock and roll show. It's funny you mention about the shows with like the 30, 40 people. I, I always have taken my son to concerts. You know, his first concert was Butch Walker in like in Kentucky when he was five. We drove down there. And then, oh, wow, okay. and then I took him to see Metallica and Iron Maiden. I've taken him to other shows. So we went and saw Diamond Head at this club outside of Chicago. And there was probably 30, 40 people there too. And he walked in. He's like, Dad, there's no one here. This show's going to suck. I'm like, no, this is what you want. Like... You can get right up front, and you can, like, love the show. We had a blast, and the band was, you know, out with the crowd afterwards and everything, and sometimes those are hidden gems. They're totally hidden gems, and uh, as somebody who also has worked shows with very minimal people, you know, on the business end of things, you know, nothing makes me, like, more sad on tour than when, you know, we're getting ready to do a show and I know there's like low ticket sales or whatever but like I'll tell you all the shows that I've ever worked that there have been you know like 40 or 50 people there have been some of like the most tenacious fans some of the most dedicated fans you know sometimes with those little shows merch numbers will be the same as big shows just because those 50 people there really give a shit you know well that's interesting I wanted to talk to you about that because you talked about what you know, was your gateway to rock and roll with Kiss and then Y&T and probably a plethora of other bands. 
Yeah. Now you're touring with bands. You have this website. You you know you're yeah. very involved in all that stuff. So how did that all start? How did that all begin? So the big thing for me, um, once like I said, when I found Wine to you when I was like 15 or 16, my world like opened up, and you know I got super into the music and stuff. And when I found all of this amazing music, I also found that metal show, which was, at the time was still regularly airing on VH1 Classic and all that stuff. And I would, I would watch it religiously. I would record every episode, every repeat. I would find it on YouTube. I, I loved that show so much. Eddie, Don, and Jim were like bigger than the rock stars to me, seeing what they were doing. And I remember one day, actually, it's also related to Lion's T. I was just in my room, you know, I was in school, probably should have been sleeping and like wasn't. And, um, this song came on like Pandora and the harmonies in it were like so perfect. Like I was like taking it back. I was like about to fall asleep. And then I heard these harmonies in the song and I was like, Holy shit, what is this? So I got up, I went over to like where my, my radio phone setup is and it was wine tea and it was contagious. And I was like, this is one of the most amazing songs I've ever heard. I need to talk to them about it. And then when I thought about it and I thought about that metal show and what Eddie, Don and Jim were doing. I was like, well, shit, I want to, I want to do that. <laughs> so I did it. <laughs> and then you started interviewing other artists. You know, I know you've, you've talked to Sebastian Bach. There's been other artists you've been, you've talked to as well. Yeah. So what, you know, when I got the idea and I kind of figured out that's what I wanted to do, I was in high school still. I was 17 years old, actually. I wasn't even 17 yet. I was 16, just about to turn 17 when I went up to my parents and I told them, I don't want to go to college and do that anymore. And I want to interview rock stars. And <laughs> they were horrified. But um, I asked, they kind of understood it, um, especially my dad, because he like, he's me. You know, he gets it. He gets the roughing little shit. So I asked them for a loan and I decided that I wanted to start a website because why not give it a shot, you know? So I spent hours. I cried a whole bunch because it was way more difficult than I expected it to be for a 16 year old girl who had no idea what she was doing. But I set up that whole website and I just started sending emails expecting a ton of no's just blindly sending emails and hoping I would just get some yeses in there and I did and actually one of my first interviews was um Eddie Trunk and Jim Florentine and Don Jameson they were nice enough to be some of the first people who like gave me a shot and sat down with me and let me talk to them so it came ended up coming really full circle and they're still like my really good friends to this day so it's been awesome honestly yeah I've experienced the same thing you know I, I got into this because my son was getting older and, mm-hmm. you know, he was wanting to hang out with his friends more than his dad. So I'm like, I need to do something. I need to figure out, you know, a hobby or something like that. And I've always liked talking rock music with my friends. You know, I've I've got all this knowledge of rock. I mean, I was a pretty dedicated fan when I was a kid. Like, I would yeah. read every magazine. I would submerge myself in everything, know everything about every band. Who wrote this song? What, you know... Hey. Yeah, yeah, and it was just like I had all this knowledge of, of bands and music. I mean, I would tell my friends about these bands that never made it in the 80s, and they would look at me like, what are you talking about? I remember what are you talking that. about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, you know, if I talked to them about a band called like Icon or Stone Fury, they're just kind of oh, like, God, right. yeah. yeah, they're lost. So I'm, I'm like, you know, I would love to do that. I would love to talk 
music with people. And it started out as, you know, trying to build a rock community, which is still a goal of mine and just talk with people that are on my Twitter feed about rock music and what their perspective is, whether it's about a band or whether it's about a topic currently. And then I started interviewing new artists because I, I love the new rock music that's out there right now. I think there's a lot of great new bands. And then I started slowly integrating with artists like, you know, George Lynch or Richie Kotzen or stuff like that. So it's been a right. slow progression, but it's similar to you. I've always loved it. And I'm like, you know, even if like nothing happens, I just enjoy doing it a few times a week. I know it's, it's, it's fun, especially because the rock and metal community is such a big family and as big of a world it is, it's also such a small world. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've been at a show and like, who knows, like Toledo, Ohio, or so, uh, like Albuquerque, New Mexico, or somewhere random, and you just see someone who, oh, I saw you at the show, or oh, I met you at this festival here. It, you know, it's it's really cool. And um, since I've been like doing this and been really engrossed in rock and metal, I've noticed, you know, the community aspect of it and how we can all just hop on Twitter and talk about bands and how much we love them and which ones we don't like. And it's always pretty civil, you know, we don't beef with each other. It's nice. <laughs> yeah. There's always one or two jerks in the crowd, but it's easy to get rid of those guys and, and, and gals. But, you know, it's, it's just amazing, you know, how, you know, I saw it the music in its heyday in the eighties, right? Where I know it was, you know, stadiums and arenas and, and it was just huge and MTV and you actually heard yeah. rock music on the radio and it wasn't the same 50 songs played over and over again. Um, <laughs> it was a lot different. And, you know, I've, I've, I've accepted the grunge era as a, a, a important part of rock history. I've learned to appreciate mm-hmm. some of those bands as I've gotten older, like Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, um, you know, I've, I've learned to, to appreciate them, but my heart is always with those bands that I grew up with and getting to see them now in more club environment or, you know, 3000 or 2,500 capacity theaters is really kind of cool because it's, I think it's a lot more intimate. I was going to, yeah, I totally agree. Cause as much as I'm kind of sad that I missed the big arenas and all that stuff, I being able to experience them, like you said, in that intimate setting and, you know, see them like that close, you know, there's a lot of venues I've been to shows at that there, there's not a bad seat in the house, you know, you can see everything so clearly and the opportunities, even um, now for me as like from a work perspective, the opportunity to be in this industry is a lot more likely for me personally than it would have been 30 years ago. I'm sure I wouldn't have, I, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there. But, you know, me and my dad said all the time how, like, what would the odds of a 17-year-old girl running around doing rock interviews be 30 in 1987? You know, I feel like it just wouldn't have happened. Yeah, I think you're probably right on that. I think there was a lot more barriers put up because everybody was larger than life. I mean, these bands were huge almost instantly, you know, after it took off. Once it took oh, off, it was, yeah, yeah. it was, it was, uh, it was unbelievable. You know, I know I was thinking about that the other day because it got to the point where like when it first started, you saw those really great bands trickling in. And then towards the end of it, it was just, man, if you had big hair and you could hold them out, you had a record deal, you know? Well, it's very interesting to say that because the eighties, I like to, I like to break up in like three different parts. The first part mm-hmm. was very raw. 
you know, you had your new wave of British heavy metal, you had, you know, ACDC and Van Halen in the early 80s and these bands, like, you know, coming from the UK, whether it was uh, Maiden and, and Saxon and all this stuff. And Ozzy was putting out solo stuff. And it really wasn't about the imagery back then. It was more about the music, you know, Y&T with Mean Streak and all this stuff. And then... Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, and then it kind of became more image conscious with I, I mentioned the Motley Crue Theater of Pain record which in my opinion really started it MTV helped that flourish helped that image flourish and then when you got to the mm-hmm. late ni- late 80s early 90s it kind of became almost a parody of itself bands were getting signed by their looks and not by the music and when I used to go read magazines and I would see the bands and I would have known the music before I saw the article Pretty soon in the late 80s, it began, like, I've never heard this band. Who are these guys? And there are these big articles because they looked pretty. They had the hair. They had the look. But the music right. really wasn't as good as what came before it. I know. And don't get me wrong. I love a lot of, like, the late 80s, like, the really, like, cheesy glam bands. I love that stuff just because, the, I don't know, I'm a 21-year-old girl, so I think it's great. But um, I totally agree with you about the fact that it was, to- I mean, you could hold up pictures of three different bands and you probably wouldn't be able to tell that they were different people yeah you know and i'm not i mean there were good bands in the early 90s whether it was slaughter or <laughs> well yeah but then there were bands like hurricane alice in like yyz and or xyz rather mm-hmm. and I, you know and you couldn't like tell the difference between the two of them because they were like they looked the same what's you know and then the music was all formula at that point you know it had the same structure had the same type of arrangement everybody had their one or two power ballads and i think yeah exactly yeah and i and i just think the i don't know the the inspirational part of the music where it came from that you know motley crew came from the streets of la and so did rat and so did L.A. Guns and so did Guns N' Roses and those bands. You know, it lost its authenticity. It did. It did. You know, these bands, I mean, the bands like I just mentioned, they were hungry. I mean, they were literally piss-ass poor. Starving. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and, and the bands that came towards the end of it were, you know, suburban kids and you know, living in their, you know, parents' house and jamming and trying to, you know, they didn't have that. God, what's the word that they didn't have that hunger. They didn't have that, you know, they'll do anything to be successful. And I yeah. think that that was reflective in the music. I agree. I, I often for the progression of how the bands went, I always look at like thrash bands for me. I feel like every thrash band's first record in the eighties was so good. Like their first and second records, like Metallica had, um, Kill 'em All, Exodus, Bonded by Blood. Those are those bands' best records. And kind of as their careers progressed throughout the 80s and 90s, you can totally hear the record labels in the background of those records because they're totally polished and they lose the rawness and that energy that they had when they put out those first albums. Yeah, I had a conversation with a uh, follower of mine about Aerosmith, and they were and they were like, "Well, you know, Aerosmith was really bluesy, and they, you know, they had a, like a really big blues influence, and then in the '80s and '90s, you know, they they really didn't it kind of went away." I'm like, "Well, because they didn't have the blues anymore; they were millionaires." <laughs> you know, and so. I know, and even if you want to look at Kiss, '70s Kiss and '80s Kiss are like two different bands, right? Right. So, I mean, I guess it, I guess it's just the nature of the music industry; it'll happen to anybody, but. <laughs> a little bit more apparent in those bands that you're talking about so how did you get into the merchandise side of the business 
Um, that uh, started two and a half, three years ago now, I'd say. Yeah, just about. I was 19. I'm going to turn 22 in a couple months. So it's been about three years now. And uh, that started after the Monsters of Rock cruise um, three years back. And I was with LA Guns at the time. They had played the cruise. I've known them for probably since I was like 17 or 18. I've known LA Guns. So um, I was hanging out with them on the cruise. We went in, uh, we went to this like nightmare festival in Florida after the cruise, which was 80s in the park, which was a shit show. But um, after that, they were like, oh, come to Atlanta with us. And I was like, I can't just go to Atlanta with you. And they were like, well, do you want to do merch? And I was like, I've never done merch. So like I hadn't done it. I'm sure it was something I could do. I've worked in retail my whole life, but I had never done it. So I was like, I'll think about it. And then I thought about it for like 25 minutes. And I was like, why am I even thinking about this? So I told him, yes. And I met up with them um, a couple of days later in Pennsylvania. And they took me on my first tour. It was a little over a week long. And I fell in love with that job. That is my favorite job in the whole wide world. I would never change it for anything. That I, I always say that LA Guns, um, that's who I sold my soul to when I started touring because now I can't get enough of it. I love being on the road more than I even like being home. So um, that all started with LA Guns. That's a band that's had an amazing resurgence over the last four or five years with two great albums. That oh my they God, released. they're so good. The live shows are so good as well. I worked, um, obviously, a ton of them on tour and then I do a lot of their one-off dates. Too. like so when I'm in New York if they roll through here I'll do their shows when I was in California I did some over there too and their their band is just so tight and they have such a good time and it's again it's another one with the crowd is just so into it it's uh, it's really great to see how um, well they're doing now granted their history I saw them a year ago outside of Chicago in support okay. of their latest album and I got tickets and I actually went by myself because none of my friends wanted to go see L.A. Guns on a weeknight. So I went by <laughs> myself, and I expected, to be honest with you, to have, you know, 40, 50 people there. I'm like, you know, it was, it was a place outside of Chicago called the Rock House. It's a great venue. And mm-hmm. I walked in there, and the place was jam-packed. And I'm like, holy cow. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, I was really happy. Like, a lot of all these people came out for them. Because I've been to shows where some of those bands from the 80s have played, like I just mentioned, you know, Diamond Hat, even though they weren't really an 80s band, but I've been to other shows where it's been 30, 40, 50 people, as we talked about. So that's what I was kind of expecting on a weeknight, and it was a huge, huge crowd. They had this opening band called The Darbies. It was a great show. It was awesome. I really enjoyed myself. I know. I'm not going to lie. When I got pulled onto that tour, I wasn't sure what I was expecting. But, I mean, like you said, every night... um, were almost sold out shows. They were filling venues. They were doing really well with merch. So they're definitely really well off now. The chemistry in the band is really good since Phil and Tracy have been back. Yeah, I agree. That was one of the things I noticed with them on stage. There was just a huge, mm-hmm. you know, chemistry with the both of them. I mean, they are, those two are LA guns and they've got some yeah. really good musicians like Ace. And I think uh, the drummer was Scott Coogan. Um, yep. And the band, I think he had just replaced the guy. And Coogie's been, Coogie's from Chicago. And he's been in so many other acts too, like Ace Freely. And he's done Lynch Mob stuff as well. So he's a great drummer as well. But they really had a great, a great show and, and, a, and a great stage present. It was nice to see. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. It's unfortunate, though, that, you know, there's going to be some legal stuff going on with that band. 
with Steve Riley's version of LA Guns, and I hate that. I just it just annoys the crap out of me when I see stuff like that. I do too, and it's also my age plays such a part in so, so many aspects of my life because I'm a 21 year old girl, and that is to start a band under the namesake of your ex band members like just the principle of what's going on with that band and how they went and started their own band and M3 will only book that version of Ellie Guns. It's the craziest, most dramatic thing I've ever heard. Well, it's just lacking confidence to go on your own and start something from scratch and start something new. I mean, KK Downing's doing the same thing with Judas Priest. I mean, how do you, how do you do that? Like, why, why would you do that? It just, at the end of the day, the fans suffer because there's going to be fans that are going to go to Steve Riley's version, exactly. expecting to see mm-hmm. Phil Lewis and Tracy guns. And it's going to be guys that were in Tracy or LA guns for like two minutes, you know? No. Yeah, totally. And that's uh, an issue. A lot of people had uh, with the M3 festival last year was that they just built it as LA guns. And I'm not, obviously, I don't know, like, legalities of anything. So I don't know how that's even, like, allowed. <laughs> but just not doing it in specifying or even using, like, the right pictures as to who was in the band at the time. People showed up expecting to see Tracy and Phil, and they got anybody but them. So it's it's a big bummer. I agree. And I hate seeing the fans have to deal with that. And it just sucks being a music fan and kind of getting screwed over by the music industry sometimes but I suppose that's also just the way it has gone as long as the music industry has been around I hope the right thing is done in this case you know I hope you know the the, the right thing which is obviously for Phil and, and, and Tracy to hold the name and to tour under that name and I hope there's mm-hmm. not a, a Steve Riley's LA Guns because I think that'll be total BS too I just well it's like when there was three or four different rats what the hell was that you know yeah oh great white has the same thing too right now it's just it's it's unfortunate that that stuff happens and if you're not up to date and educated on what's going on with the individual band you might get you might not see what you anticipated when you go to the show so yeah and it just sucks too i guess you know not being able to at least for me i guess it kind of is shitty because there's so many bands I'll never ever see the original lineup of. Like I could never hope <laughs> to see the original lineup of some of my favorite bands um, due to them like not getting along and like you know just normal stuff I guess. But it just sucks at the end of the day when the music fans have to suffer because the big boys can't get along with each other. You know. <laughs> well, that's what the great thing about the crew tour is, and hopefully it does doesn't get canceled, which more than likely it will or get postponed. But postponed, I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah, I hope. I mean, maybe they'll get postponed in the fall, and they'll and they'll change it to an arena tour. I don't know, or maybe next year. Right. Who knows? But that's what's so great about Motley Crue is that it's all four original members, and the kids that have been exposed to it, the younger generation that's been exposed to them because of the movie The Dirt, it gives them a chance to go see one of the greatest acts of that period. Oh, I totally agree about Motley Crue. I'm really happy that they decided to do the um tour again but um for like me as like a more rabid music fan like I can tell when I'm watching them on stage that like those aren't brothers anymore maybe they are now but at least when I saw them on their last final tour <laughs> um the second final tour the second round of that so it was probably five or six years ago now I think like you could tell kind of watching them on stage that like 
they wanted it to be done. They were ready to kind of put it behind them and you could kind of see the chemistry on stage was lacking. But like you were saying earlier, since the dirt came out and there are so many new fans now and even more casual fans than there are than us, um, it's definitely going to be a really good experience for them to be able to, you know, see them. And it's not that Molly Crew can't perform well. Their stage show is still amazing. They put on an awesome show, but just for somebody who can kind of read into it a little bit more, it sucks. And I wish they all wanted to be best friends again. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of, man, there's a lot of backstories to all four of those guys. And yeah, it, it's a shame how it, you know, what it led to. And there's, a, you know, they're very, you know, there's different fractured. There's a, definitely fractured relationships with a few of those guys and I don't know if it'll ever be repaired so yeah from what I can see though now granted with social media and everything you never know what's going on but they seem to be um doing a little bit better a little bit more brotherly than they were when it ended so I suppose that's good merchandise is such a huge important thing for bands now because touring is so important you know the days of the big record contracts are over you know the days of the big advances are over so yeah. they have to constantly tour. They have to constantly put out new music. It's great for the fans because we get our needs satisfied because, you know, what used to take two, three years to put out a new record, most bands are putting out something within a year, maybe a, a live acoustic thing or, you know, an EP of something or even like totally. up to 18 months. So the cycle is a lot quicker, which is great for the fans. But for the bands, you know, they ha- they it's now – they can't take any breaks, you know, or, or if the breaks they do take are a lot shorter than they're accustomed to. When mm-hmm. you're behind the, the table selling merch, you know, what do you see? You know, how are, you know, give give the listeners kind of a taste of how the bands are reliant on that money for merchandise. Well, I'm not going to lie. Like, you know, there have been days on tour where, you know, the tour manager will pull me to the side and be like, listen, if we don't sell this much in merch, um, we aren't going to get paid on time. So that's really what it comes down to with some bands. Um, not all bands, obviously, I guess it depends on the caliber of the band that you're seeing. But, you know, that's what we pay for our gas with. That's what, you know, fills our envelopes at, at the end of the week, you know. So they're good and bad days. Um, virtual usually um, they can like make up for each other but yeah from behind the table it's really important for us to make money through merchandise but it's also really important to me as a person selling the merchandise and kind of as the connection between the fans and the band to make sure that we're also selling something that people who earned this money um, and spent their hard like time doing that um, are going to actually have a good product to buy so it goes both ways um, it's really dependent on the band to make something quality and worthwhile for the fans. And then it's also reliant on the fans to buy it and encourage and support the band that way. I see a lot of different merchandise items, a lot of different paraphernalia mm-hmm. that I didn't see when I was younger. You know, you see yeah. now the, the, the can op- or the bottle opener, you see, you know, more stickers. It used to be just one or two. Now some bands have like 10 and it's got, they got belt buckles. They got, it's just amazing. And yes. <laughs> what, what do you see? What moves, you know, what's the, what's the, uh, the item that moves fastest and, and the most of Is it still the t-shirts? Is it the CDs? What, what do you see? So a lot of fans 
come to a show definitely looking for a tour t-shirt with the dates on the background with their date and their city and their venue on it. They're always very specific about looking at the back of a t-shirt before they buy it. <laughs> but um, um, t-shirts are always really big, especially, like I said, the ones with the date back in the actual t-shirt a lot of people are usually the ones that'll move the quickest the other kind of one-off shirts are hit or miss and then uh table items are really popular too so the little knickknacks a lot of people want patches and pins lately so i think battle vests are coming back into style if they ever left but patches and pins have been super popular too and then always stickers and little things like that surprisingly um we don't really sell a lot of music at shows, or at least in my experience, I don't really sell too many physical items as far as music goes. I'll maybe sell 10 CDs in a night and a handful of records, but music doesn't do too, too well. People usually, like I said, people are streaming. So I guess paying $15 for a CD is not something everybody wants to do. That kills me because I'm still a physical lover of music you know I still love the physical aspect of it. I love touching it I love the CD you know I just bought a new car I had to spend like six seven hundred bucks for them to put a CD player in the car because I didn't have one um you know and, oh my and, God. and it's like I'm like no because I'm like I, I listen to my CD, CDs all the time I love that physical form and I'm always buying CDs at shows so to hear that it pains me to know that because people are streaming physical music I mean I've known that for a while and I don't know how much yeah. longer it's going to hang on but I don't understand why people don't buy the CD and then download it onto their computer it's it's digital it's still digital music it's still sound to me it sounds better than any streaming service I don't know I don't know I think it's just uh maybe it's a young people thing I'm not calling any of you old but um, thanks Jade I feel like with I got you <laughs> I feel like with um the younger audience, one, having to go to the store and buy a record or buy a CD just adds an extra step. I suppose if you could just Google it and hear it immediately, you can do that, and that'll make it easier for uh, my lazy generation of humans. And then other than that, um, it's, it's, I think, again, it has to do with the young people thing. We don't really have to go to a record store, go to a department store and browse through the CDs or the records and just look at the cover and just see that. We can go on YouTube and we can go on iTunes or Apple Music or like whatever and hear it before we buy it. And I think that deters people from actually buy, like buying it because we don't have to go kind of test drive music anymore. We can just hear it for what it is and decide based on that if that's something you actually want to invest in, which I feel like a lot of our priorities on things to spend money on probably aren't music. I'm that guy that brings like 40, 50, 60 bucks to a show just for CDs, <laughs> you know? Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll buy like, you know, the. I, I always try to buy the opening band too, you know, if they've got something because yeah. I love supporting new music. I always try to buy the newest release. Like I'll wait to buy the album at the show because I know the money then goes directly to the artist rather than buying yeah. it on Amazon or someplace else. I'll, obviously, I'll buy it on Amazon if it's something that you, you know, a band's not touring anymore or whatever, but you know, if LA Guns is coming to town, I'll be like, well, I love their new album, but I'm going to wait to buy it at the show. I guess that leads to my next question. What piece of merchandise 
impacts the band most financially in terms of they get all the money back or they, they don't have to pay a lot to get the money from that piece of merchandise? Um, as far as music goes, I'm not entirely sure because that kind of goes beyond me because you end up having to deal with like the label and all that kind of stuff. But as far as like soft goods go, which is going to be like your t-shirts, sweatpants, hoodies, stuff like that. Um, a lot of the times, like on this last tour I did with Overkill, um, I actually had a cost of goods sheet so I could see the actual profits. So, I mean, usually, and again, this makes me really angry when bands charge a lot for merchandise, especially as a person who knows the cost of goods. A t-shirt, you can probably get made between 5 and $10. So the profit on that is going to be usually pretty pretty substantial like for a shirt you probably I had one that was like 750 to make and they were charging 35 on one of the tours I did so the profit markup is pretty good so I generally will deter people just to t-shirts because they're the easiest to make they're the cheapest to make and they have the biggest markup and it goes right to the band's pocket too you know I mean all that money I mean obviously they have to have the upfront cost of having that stuff printed but the cost to print it versus what they're making really does impact the band. And as you said, right, the cost to make the shirt is not that much compared to what it sells for. So the profit on it is, you know, whatever percentage it is. I don't have it, you know, the info in front of me. But when you take into account how bands make money now, they don't make money off mm-hmm. of the music. You know, those, those days are over. They have yeah. to make money. If, if you as a fan want to keep seeing these bands come to your town, you've got to buy some of the merch. You've got to get them you've got to help them financially to to able to do it. If it doesn't become, it doesn't make sense for them to tour financially because no one's buying the merch, well, then you're not going to see the bands come to your town at the local club or the local theater. So, yeah, you know, the the cost versus profit may be very, it may be very significant, but that's how they're making their money. That's how they're surviving. And again, as a person, like I was talking about earlier, who sells the merch and is the person between the fans and the band. It's really important to me to make sure that I'm selling something that's really good and that the fans have a nice experience and a really good buying experience because at the end of the day, they're spending their hard money. We're trying to earn money. So there's like a mutual respect thing kind of going on there too. But um, a lot of fans, I feel like don't really realize the cost of touring like generic fan is like always angry how something like all oh, this band didn't come on a Friday night so I couldn't go and they played more than 20 minutes away from my house and like stuff like little nitpicky things like that and it's like people don't really realize what goes into a tour so having those bands who come out like you said with their $60 to buy their CDs really means a lot to the bands that are playing the clubs and smaller venues it's amazing how fans could love something so much, like rock mm-hmm. music, like, we, like we're talking about now. And also in the same breath, not all fans, I'm not saying every fan, but a lot of fans also can minimize the value of it as they're, as they're expressing their love for it. And it really bothers me that you, know, you hear, you know, oh, you know, people get upset, right, when D. Snyder talks about, the lack of rock X during the Super Bowl halftime, or people get upset right. when they see the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominations, or people get upset that the Rock Awards for the Grammys aren't even televised, and they get all mad and they give their bluster, you know, opinion on 
on social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you ask them to buy a T-shirt or you ask them to buy the new music. And it's like, you know, well, I can just get it for free. I can just download it. And I, or, or I can, I can you know, that, that shirt's too much. You know, what, what do they want from their favorite genre? You know, what do they expect? I, I, I get so baffled by the responses in the comments sometimes. It, it just really, I don't know, it really pisses me off. Yeah, no, me too. I totally, I totally understand what you're saying. Like, it, like I've been behind the merch table and I've had so many people just say mean things to me about like merchandise and the band and like things like that. It's like, why are you here? And I'll never, I will never, ever, ever fault anybody for not being able to like afford to buy a t-shirt or maybe wanting to spend however much money on a t-shirt because obviously I get how life works and I know that's not something for everybody, but it's just, oh, it's rubs me the wrong way when people go out of their way to kind of complain about the things that are out of our hands, you know? Well, it's, you don't have to buy it. No one's putting a gun to your head to buy the t-shirt, right? Right. Just like when you go to a department store or a retail, you know, retail store and you want to buy something, no one's forcing you to go buy it. The cost is the cost. You don't go to Target or you don't go to Kohl's or wherever and put a bunch of clothes in your cart and go up to the, to the, you know, the checkout counter and try to negotiate the price on the stuff. You know, you don't, <laughs> no you one, <laughs> no one does that. So it's the same thing at a rock show that the, the price listed is what the, what the price is. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you don't have to spend, you know, if the shirt's 30 and you only have 20, you don't have to spend that $20 or you don't have to be feel bad about not getting a t-shirt, buy a CD or buy a sticker, buy a patch, buy that stuff. You know, I mean, right, right. There are always like alternate options. I just, I think the people who just want to complain about, we can't change them. They're, they're no. just going to be stuck like that. We have to focus on the good fans and uh, the really dedicated ones. Like we said, it has nothing. It at the same time, it has nothing to do with money, but everything to do with money. The music industry is a really, hard place to gauge because like being a music fan isn't about how much money you spend on the band but being a band kind of relies on how much money the fans spend on you it's so confusing but at the end of the day you know you just have to support in as many ways as you can which is you know buying a t-shirt or sharing a post on facebook or telling somebody about a band's new album what about the newer bands do you do any merch stuff or are you a fan of any of the newer music that's out there um, I mean, as far as merch goes, I will work for anybody who calls me. I love doing merch, so it's um, always fun. I'll, I'll almost never say no. But as newer bands, yeah, I'm totally... Um, I used to, like I said, when I was like a diehard Kiss fan, I really ignored all other music. So once I kind of started listening to other music other than, you know, Love Gun, I um, found a lot of new bands. And they're, uh, like you said in the email that you sent me, you said like Dirty Honey, Greta Van Fleet, all those kinds have been really good too. Yeah, I'm really excited about the new music that's out there and, you know, what's coming out. I think it's right underneath the surface right now and it's only a matter of time before it punches through and becomes more mainstream than it is, more relevant than it is right now. And I think that's really what the proper word to describe rock and roll. I mean, I know there's people that think rock and roll is dead. That's obviously not true, but I think the lack of relevancy is definitely an issue and it's getting more and more of an of an issue every year. But I think with the new group of bands that are coming out, I think I think we're going to be saved at some point. That's my opinion. 
I completely agree. I was about to say, over the last few years especially, I feel like I've seen such a resurgence of bands and, like, specifically bands with, like, a classic rock and roll sound, if that makes sense. Like, the struts really channeling Queen and Freddie Mercury's energy, and then you have Dirty Honey, which also sounds super old school. I feel like we have a lot of these new bands that are kind of really, like we were talking about earlier, hungry and kind of on the verge of blowing up again. So I'm really excited. And we've had so much mainstream help lately. Like, the struts did the Victoria's Secret fashion show. We have so many you know, rock stars now integrating their way into the WWE and AEW performing there, doing WrestleMania and things like that. So I think we're starting to be a little bit more well-represented. I agree. I think that is very important. I mean, there's there's a lack of infrastructure right now in rock music. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, everyone's trying to find their own way out there. And hopefully a new infrastructure comes about because of that. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you sometimes you've got to completely blow it up to rebuild it again and hopefully that's what's happening i just think that you know in terms of a lot of the classic rock fans a lot of the new rock is not resonating which maybe is to be expected considering the demographic but with the kids i think that's important i think musicians and new bands and existing bands need to find that connection with the younger audience because i think of course as as they grow up and if they're rock fans now at a younger age they're going to grow up as rock fans too and they're going to spend the money Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Uh, with the younger fans especially, I feel like, um, well, again, I define young. Like, am I young? <laughs> well, you're young, but I'm talking about, like, the junior high kids and the high school kids. You know, that's that's right. what I'm okay. talking about, you know. Because for me, like, when I was in high school, I was obviously, like, an older rock and metal fan. You know, I could occasionally get, like, my friends to listen to Van Halen here and there. But I knew if I wanted to find a common ground with them, I would have to put on a band like Hailstorm or something like that to kind of bring my friends in um, because it was catchy and it was a little heavy but not too heavy. And then for me, you know, it was kind of like a nice balance. It's listenable. It's good. So that was like the common ground for me and my friends in high school a lot were like those newer rock bands that aren't too crazy but still um, very radio-friendly and listenable. Well, we could go on and talk about rock music forever. Jay, you know, you've been awesome. Awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm so happy you asked me to. It's been uh, really lovely talking to you. I hope I could provide some insight on some sides of the music industry that you weren't too familiar with. You definitely did. You know, and, and if I already was, it's also good for my listeners to understand that, understand what's important and how things impact the band and stop complaining about stuff and just go enjoy rock music and support rock music. Exactly. At the end of the day, all that matters is that, you know, you support the bands that you love and you really make make it known that these bands are still out there, especially the older ones, but they're still out there kicking ass. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. Well, Jade, all right. thanks again. Once again, everybody, this is Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Hope everybody stays safe and we will talk again soon. Thank you.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.